2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 9. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verse 9. Then we're going to go down to verse 15, across into chapter 3, and then into chapter 4. So 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, in which the apostle writes, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Chapter 3 and verse 16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And then chapter 4 and verse 2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, we've been focusing on some of the recurring themes of Paul's parting words here in 2 Timothy uh, and throughout this epistle. And of course, we thought in chapter 1 about the word ashamed. And we saw how that Paul exhorted Timothy not to be ashamed. And then last week, we honed in on the word endure. And we saw the necessity of a Christian exercising endurance, uh, like a soldier, uh, like a farmer, like an athlete, uh, like the Lord Jesus himself. Well, I'm sure if you were following those few passages along this morning, you'll have identified the recurring theme. We're thinking today about the Word of God. And I want to share with you four marvelous truths today from 2 Timothy concerning the Word of God. We want to see that God's Word is a prevailing Word, that God's Word is a precise Word, that God's Word is a perfecting Word, and that it is a powerful Word. Word. Let's look at each of these thoughts in turn this morning. And let's look at the first in verse 9 of our reading. We read this passage, uh, we read this verse last week as part of our passage on endurance. But in the midst of all of that, Paul says in verse 9, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is that God's word is a prevailing word. Now you remember in this section of the epistle, uh, Paul is exhorting Timothy to be a good soldier, to suffer hardness as a soldier of Jesus Christ. He was honest enough to tell Timothy that there would be tough times ahead, that it wasn't going to be plain sailing, that there would be times of challenge and times of trial, and uh, that he uh, himself was bearing this out by virtue of the fact that he was imprisoned. He writes this book not from a comfy office chair, but he's writing it from a prison cell. And uh, he's expecting to be executed. Not only is he imprisoned, but he anticipates that he's likely going to be put to death. So he, in his own words, is in bonds. But then he adds this thought, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. You know, that is so true. You can shackle the preacher... But you can never shackle the Word of God. 
Whatever men may try to do it, whether they burn it, ban it, or, or banish it, the Bible will always come out on top. You can never defeat the Word of God. It's an eternal book. And uh, it cannot be restrained in any sense. The gospel has never been and can never be confined to a prison. You know, if you were to go on holiday today and you were fortunate enough to be able to visit Italy, I know that's ever-decreasing ever possibility, but nevertheless, if you could go to Italy and visit the, the sites that you would see there, the Colosseum and so forth, one of the sites that you would probably be pointed toward would be the catacombs. And the catacombs is a series of subterranean tunnels that was used by the early church to bury the Christian dead. But also, it was a, a meeting place for believers. During a time of persecution, uh, believers met in those catacombs. Indeed, great numbers of Christians met in those catacombs. And uh, they would put various inscriptions on the wall that tell us of their presence. And one of the most popular and one of the most common inscriptions was a citation of uh, 2 Timothy 2 and 9, where they would simply write, The word of God is not bound. And that's a wonderful word when you think about where those Christians were. Uh, many of them were facing incarceration. Many of them were likely to die in the amphitheaters of the Roman Empire. And yet with all, their confidence was the word of God is not bound. They said, you can shackle us, but you cannot shackle the word of God. You can put us down, but you cannot put down the word of God. And what a truth that is. You see, it seems the harder that men try to contain the Bible, the greater its power is revealed to be. You know, uh, if you look back in, in recent history, uh, relatively recent history, before the uh, communist revolution in China in the late 1940s uh, and the early 1950s, there were something like 700,000 Christians in China. And then in the subsequent so-called cultural revolution, uh, some 30 million Chinese people were slaughtered, including most of those Christians. Most of those Christians were put to death. And yet despite decades of brutal communist oppression, imprisonment, and execution, the Church of Jesus Christ in China today has an estimated membership of 44 million people. And that's, you know, that's just an estimate. Uh, if you, that's likely just taken into account largely the registered churches. But if you take the unregistered churches, that probably goes up to 100 million people. So here are these communists, and they have tried to oppress the truth. And they've tried to suppress the Word of God. And whilst the Word of God is still scarce, in the land of China with respect to uh, paper copies of it. Nevertheless, the truth of it continues on. It endures in the heart. Its power cannot be bound. The more it is assailed, the more it will prevail. Now, we've seen that even in our own country and around the world in the last 16, 18 months of lockdown. You know, here we were being unable to meet. We weren't able to gather for four months of last year. Some churches still haven't uh, gathered, and we're having to live under the shadow of all of these restrictions. And uh, yet all the while the gospel is going out, the gospel has been reaching more people than ever. You see, you can lock down an entire nation, but you cannot lock down the Word of God. 
You cannot keep the word of God under lock and key. You know, in April of last year, right at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, one of the UK's uh, largest online Christian stores, Eden Books, saw a print edition of the Bible sealed uh, rise by 55% in one month. They saw a mammoth increase. So there were people now buying Bibles who never bought Bibles before. There were people who were reading the Bible who never read the Bible before. There were people listening to the preaching of the Bible who never heard the preaching of the Bible before. And we hope and pray and we ought to pray that all of this will come good. That once we get past the post on this pandemic, that the seed of God's word having been planted in the hearts of many people who previously were not exposed to it, we hope and pray for salvation decisions and people to come to faith in Christ. In that same month, online the Bible took the, was uh, downloaded some two million times in the UK in one month. Two million Bible downloads just in the United Kingdom. You see, you can lock up the preacher, whether by prison or by quarantine, but you can never lock up God's word. It's always going to run free. It's always going to take its own course. It always accomplishes what God intends it to do. God's word is prevailing. It cannot be bound. Then I want you to notice in verse 15 of chapter 2, that God's word is a precise word. Paul says to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now look at those last three words, that title for the Bible. It's the word of truth. That's a title that scripture takes for itself again and again. It presents itself as the word of truth. Not a word of truth, but the word of truth. It's definitively the truth. Uh, this little scripture uh, highlights this matter. And indeed, if you go back into your Bible, the widow of Seraphath said to Elijah that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Paul told the Corinthians that his ministry was approved by the word of truth. Ephesians 1.13 reminds us that our salvation came after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And James tells us that it is God who begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, the Bible is true. It's not just true here and there. It's true from cover to cover. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the Bible is true. And its truth is very precise. You know, it's not, uh, it's not an ambiguous message. As one fellow said, it's not the things I don't understand in the Bible that bothers me. It's the things I do understand in the Bible that bothers me. And the Bible is very clear about the need of salvation. It's very clear about man's responsibility uh, to God. It's very clear about human nature. It's absolutely true. It's precise in its truth. And you know, when we look at it, we think about the various indications of this, of the fact that it's true. You know, we look at the fact that it has this remarkable unity from Genesis to Revelation, despite the fact that it's written by 40 different writers, all claiming to be writing under the inspiration of God, 40 writers on several different continents with several different languages from backgrounds as diverse as, as from shepherds to kings, and yet with all, it's one coherent whole. We know it's true. 
true due to the many archaeological discoveries that have been made surrounding it just last year. Now, just last year in lockdown. Now, understand in Israel there are 30,000 identified archaeological sites, most of which have never been dug. <laughs> 30,000, okay, so they're only scraping the surface of the, of the archaeological wealth that they have in the land of Israel. Just last year, under lockdown conditions, remember Israel was affected by the pandemic as much as we were. In fact, they had a much more severe lockdown than we did. And uh, just last year, archaeologists discovered a fort allied with King David on the Golan Heights. Palaces that served Israelite kings, such as King Omri and Ahab in the Jezreel Valley. A clay seal that depicted a lion roaring that dated back to the reign of King Jeroboam II. Uh, the discovery of remains of a palace belonging to the king of Manasseh. And then people say, oh, you know, the Bible's a book of fairy tales. Well, I hate to tell you this, you don't discover archaeological finds that are related to fairy tales. You know, they still find the remains of the house of the three little pigs. It simply isn't there, is it? No. Nobody's yet found the, the home of Little Red Riding Hood in the heart of the forest. But they find these things constantly. And so there's a great wealth of archaeological material that is telling us that the Bible is a word of truth. That what it said about the past is absolutely correct. And when the Bible touches on matters pertaining to science, it is absolutely true. You think about how the Bible talks about paths in the sea, it talks about the sea lanes. Even though David, when he writes in Psalm 8 concerning those things, had never been to sea. Uh, when you think about how that Paul tells us that men share the same blood, that you, can, that you can transfer the blood of one into the blood of another, and yet Paul was no expert in blood. You think about how that we're told that you cannot count the number of the stars at a time when the naked eye felt that man felt he could by the naked eye count the number of the stars. And yet the Bible tells us that they were boundless, that there was absolutely no limit to the number of the stars in the sky. Even yet, every time they put a more powerful telescope in space and put it into deep space, what do they find? Even more stars. And so even NASA will tell you that the stars are innumerable. But how in the world could that be known back in the book of Genesis except that the Bible is a word of truth? The hydrological cycle, you know, the fact that the, that the water is evaporated off the sea, that it's blown inland, that it cools down, that it, that it drops onto the uh, earth beneath, that it forms rivers and then rolls back into the sea again. Uh, you know, you and I know about these things, but here were ancients who had not got the same degree of scientific advancement that we have, and yet they're writing about these amazing uh, scientific truths. The Bible is a word of truth. The Bible predicts the future with remarkable accuracy. You think about the life of Jesus alone. How it was predicted he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. How that he would be born to a virgin. Uh, how that he would be uh, visited by the wise men and the shepherds. The wise men bearing gifts. The shepherds coming with their, their flocks. 
how that he would be uh, he would be uh, have to have to move into Egypt in order to escape persecution. How he'd have to go down into Egypt. Uh, how indeed he would live a perfect life and die a perfect death upon the cross at Calvary. Crucifixion being portrayed a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented as a means of death. The Bible actually pins it down and says, "This is what will become of your Savior. This is what's going to happen to the Lord Jesus. His crucifixion, his burial, how he would be buried in a rich man's grave. His resurrection was prophesied in Psalm 16. Uh, his ascension was prophesied. Uh, his coming again is prophesied. As surely as the truths of the past were fulfilled to the letter, the truth that yet pertain to the future shall be fulfilled to the letter. The Bible is a word of truth. And here's the long and short of it. The Bible is God's word. And as such, it is absolutely true because God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. So we know that the Bible, having been presented by inspiration of God, is completely accurate and precise in all of it says, and therefore it should be studied and rightly divided according to chapter 2 and verse 15. We should study what God says and we should rightly divide the word of truth. But then we go to chapter 3 and verse 16. And we see that God's word is a perfecting word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, we know this passage well. We know what the word inspired means there. We know it means God breathed. In other words, what we have written before us came from the mouth of God. It was breathed out by God himself. The writers were not inspired in the way that Shakespeare was inspired or Milton was inspired or some other uh, great giant of literature was inspired, but it was inspired in the sense that God himself uh, directed the writers to record precisely what it was he wanted them uh, to say. And therefore, Paul describes the scriptures, notice, not only as inspired, but as profitable. They're there for our benefit. They are there for our gain. They are there for our help and our hope. You know, by the word of God, we are sanctified. By it, we are being, notice, perfected. That means we're being equipped. You know, when you read the word of God, when you study the word of God, when you listen to the word of God, you're being equipped. You're being prepared before eternity. Uh, you know, Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Again, he recognizes the Bible as the word of truth. He, he confesses it as the word of truth. Uh, and he says it's the sanctifying power. It has the power to set us apart unto God. The word of God is uh, one of God's primary means of grace. By the word of God and by uh, the means of prayer and the Holy Spirit, we are indeed growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. Uh, you know, as one writer put it, the Bible Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity, but to make you conform to Christ's image. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of facts, but to transform your life. And that's what the Bible is there for. It's a perfecting book. It's there to transform us. You know, this is one of the 
difficulties that I see as, I, as I've traveled around and preached, particularly on prophetic themes. There are Christians who want to sit around and, and sensationalize in the area of Bible prophecy, but they're, they're not really seeking for personal transformation. They're just looking for little tidbits of information that they can take and, uh, and somehow or other will you know, scratch them where they itch. Listen, that's not what Bible prophecy is about. Bible prophecy isn't about giving you little interesting facts that uh, somehow or other you know, catch your interest. The Bible prophecy, indeed the whole of prophecy, is about uh, transforming us, perfecting us, equipping us. Making us different men and women. Now, there are several ways in which the Bible does this. All of which we can find in verses 16 and 17. Notice, first of all, it is profitable for doctrine. There's that D word that Paul keeps bringing up. Doctrine. You know, so many people don't like doctrine these days. But doctrine just means teaching. Where would you be without teaching? You know, there's an advert right now on the internet. I've seen it on Facebook several times uh, for the, the, church, the church's big day out. And uh, it, it says this. This is how the church will look after lockdown when we come together. And the whole video is about music. The whole video. Not one, not one image of anybody preaching. Not one. And I thought to myself, that's not what the church is about. That's not what the church is for. The Bible tells us we're to study the Word of God, as we've just read, that we're to read it. Rather than relying upon what men say about it, we ought to know what Bible doctrine is. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 9, But in vain do they worship me, speaking of the Pharisees, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And that's the problem today. It's been the problem in every day, hasn't it? That people teach what men say. And not what God's word says. You know, doctrine is emphasized in these pastoral epistles. Uh, in fact, 19 out of the 21 occurrences of doctrine in the New Testament are found in Paul's writings. And 15 of those 19 are found right here in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, the pastoral epistles. It's fatal that our doctrine is biblical. Otherwise, what happens? We end up teaching denominationalism. We end up teaching traditions. Well, why do we do well, This is what we've always done. Well, that's no reason to do it. If it's not in the Bible, we end up teaching commentaries. And when you go down that route and you're teaching tradition and denominationalism and commentary, you're no better off than the rabbis of old. Remember the rabbis we did in Jesus' day? Well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, but Rabbi so-and-so said that. We don't want to get to that place. We want to know what God has to say. So the Bible is profitable for doctrine. It is profitable for reproof. There's that next word. And this has to do with bringing things to light. That's what the word reproof means, to bring something uh, to light. You know, there are some sins that I would never have known were sins if it were not for the word of God. Do you ever find that to be true in your life? There were things that you thought were perfectly acceptable, perfectly normal, not to be in any sense condemned, but just let people get on with it. And yet with all we discover, we open God's book and it throws light upon these things that God is against those things. There are sins in our lives that when the word of God is shown upon us, we're brought under conviction concerning them. We may not have been convicted before, but we became convicted 
after. Reproof will tell you when you are out of bounds. It acts rather like an umpire at Wimbledon. You know, the umpire sits there and, and uh, the player thinks the ball is in and the umpire does what? He shouts, out. And they, uh, you know, back in the day, whenever McEnroe used to play, remember that? <laughs> he would scream and shout and kick, throw his tennis racket around, say nasty things to the umpire, but he was still out. In fact, he was more out after all that. <laughs> It was before it. But that's what, this, that's what this book does. There are things we do, we think they're in, and God's word says, out. Hey, that's got to go. That's wrong. And we ought not to re- resent that aspect of Scripture. Now look in Proverbs chapter 3 for a moment. In fact, we'll just do a little chain reference through Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 11. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Neither be weary of his correction. You know, I I took uh, Isaac and Henry out yesterday. I owed them a trip to the uh, trampoline park down in Stone. I was supposed to take him last midterm, and then Henry broke his leg, and uh, Isaac was isolating because somebody in his preschool class had COVID, and so I couldn't take them. Well, I got a, a voucher, and I thought, I've got to spend this voucher before I go. And so I took them yesterday to the trampoline park, and then afterwards I took them to Longton Park, and uh, they, they, were doing, they were going up the little slide there, and uh, I told Henry he could have two goals, and he went up the slide, and he, was at this, had, he had his first slide and he went up the second slide and he, and he looked at me and he says, you don't have to tell me. I know this is my last one. <laughs> he said, you don't have to remind me. <laughs> well, he was despising. <laughs> he was despising the word of correction, wasn't he? Uh, he was resenting the fact that he was going to have to go after he had finished that particular slide. But we can all be like that, can't we? Oh, you don't have to remind me. I know all that. I know that's not right. You don't have to remind me. Look at chapter 15 and verse 5. Chapter 15 and verse 5. It says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof is prudent. He that regards reproof is prudent. He that thinks about the light that God's word has shone upon his life is wise. First hand, correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way. And he that hateth reproof shall die. At verse 31, the ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise. He that refuseth instruction despises his own soul. But he that hears reproof gets understanding. You know, the Bible is telling us that reproof is an important aspect of our spiritual well-being. And so here we see the Word of God makes provision for that, and it's profitable for us. Notice then also, back in 2 Timothy 3 and 16, not only profitable for doctrine and for reproof, but also for correction. The Word of God not only shows us what is wrong with our lives, it sets before us that which is right, that which we ought to do, the way in which we ought to go. The word correction literally means to make straight again. To make straight again. 
You know, when you think about it in, uh, in building terms, if you uh, drop a plumb line, you can tell whether the wall you're building is straight. Or you take a level and you put that level across your building blocks, you can tell whether you have been building straight. Or you're going off course. And so the level not only shows what is out of line, that would be reproof, but it also gives a standard for what is correct, straight. And therefore that's correction. So you can lift that level up and you can see where your line ought to have been. And you're corrected. So in the Greek language, this word was used for setting upright an object that had fallen down. You know, you knock over a vase, you set it back up again. That's the idea. Uh, it was used to, uh, to help a person on their feet after they'd stumbled. Somebody trips and falls, you take them by the hand and you pick them back up again. That's the idea of the word correction. And sometimes the word of God does that for us, doesn't it? It sets us on our feet again. Puts us in the right way. Says this is the way you ought to go. Walk you in it. You know, uh, this is the thing you ought to do. You know, that's what the, the Bible does for us. It says before our hearts God's order and allows us to correct our thinking uh, and to collect, correct our logic and to adjust our ways. And then it's a profitable for instruction in righteousness. That's what verse 16 says. That has to do with disciplining a person, chastening them. Sometimes, friends, the reading and the preaching of God's word may make us feel uncomfortable. You know, sometimes, maybe if I'm preaching, you're sitting out there and you're not feeling particularly comfortable uh, because the Word of God is speaking to you. And uh, that's actually a good feeling. It doesn't feel good at the time, but it's a, it's a very important sense uh, of right and wrong, of, of being disciplined by the Word of God. It's, that uncomfortable feeling is actually something we should uh, feel from time to time and should sense as the Word of God is proclaimed. And then by the Word of God we are completely equipped. Notice again verse 17, the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good Uh, to be completely equipped. You know, I understand that, uh, I want you to understand that when it comes to the Christian life, the Bible is all that is necessary. It's all we need. We don't need anything else. That's what the word perfect means. That God has given you everything necessary to live out the Christian life in the Word of God. You don't need any uh, extra biblical experiences. You don't need uh, to be groping around in the dark for something else. You know, praying, oh God, show me your will. Here it is. Here's his will right in front of you in black and white. That's all you need. And by his word, you're thoroughly furnished. That means the same thing and more. Not only are you perfectly furnished and completely equipped, but you're even more perfectly furnished and more completely equipped. Well, what does that mean? You know, how, how, how does it, what does it mean to be adequately equipped in this way? A number of years ago, uh, an elderly lady in, in our church came to me and said, uh, this is way, way back, not this church, came, back, came to me and said, Pastor, would you do me a favor? Uh, she says, I, I've, bought some, I've bought a chest of drawers. And, uh, she's, and she named two young men in church. She says, they tried to build it, she says, but uh, they've not been able to finish it. I'm wondering if you could come and, and sort it out for me. So I went to sort it out. Unfortunately, the two men that she asked to build it, to be honest with you, weren't the right two men at all. They just had no idea what they were doing. 
I mean, zero idea. Uh, both of them, and I don't say this unkindly, but both of them had learning difficulties. Um, and so when I got there, well, the chest of drawers, what a sight it was. You know, they had taken a saw to it at one point. This is a flat pack chest of drawers. They had taken a saw to it at one point. They had driven nails into it. Uh, you don't take nails to a, a flat pack uh, chest of drawers. Um, they had drawers that were sitting wonky. <laughs> You know, I was, a, I was like, where do I even start with this? And so I, I started by taking it all, all apart. And, uh, and then I looked for the instructions. And I, I dug around. And, and here the instructions were still in their sealed package. They hadn't even read the instructions. And so I started putting it back together again according to the instructions. And sadly, it ended up with a drawer missing because they had sawed a piece off and, uh, and had that done damage in the course of things. But at least we managed to make something out of it. Uh, but, but here's the thing. I wonder is that sometimes how we are with the Bible? You know, we try to push ahead in our lives. We're trying to grow in our lives. But what? The instructions are not opened. They don't read the instructions. And we consequently get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. So if the word of God is prevailing, if the word of God is a precise word, if the word of God is a perfecting word, then it stands to reason also that the word of God is a powerful word. And that's where we come to chapter 4 and verse, uh, let's read verses 1 to 4 this time. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 4. I charge thee therefore before God. And the Lord Jesus, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Notice the distinction there between those two. He judges the quick, those who are alive at his appearing. That's the church. And we're caught up to the judgment seat of Christ. And those who are dead at his kingdom. That's the great white throne of judgment. And he says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Now remember, this is Paul's parting words. And he is concerned that as far as Timothy's ministry is uh, concerned, he should be preaching the word. The godly Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane in an ordination sermon said this, Here is the main thing. Preach the word. The pulpit is our joy and throne. This is our watchtower. Here we must warn the people. The silver trumpet is put into our hands. Woe be unto us if we preach not the gospel. It is in vain we preach if we preach not the word. The truth as it is in Jesus from God. It is not the work of the minister to open up the schemes of human wisdom and learning, not to bring his own fancies, but to tell the facts and glories of the gospel. We must speak of what is within the word of God. My friends, there's a reason why our pulpit holds central place in the architecture of our church. Uh, this is not just a foible on our part. Uh, this is not just something that happens to be by uh, consequence of tradition. It's there because the Word of God is to have a central place 
in our churches. And uh, we mustn't push it into the corner and set up the Lord's table and, and in some sense make the Lord's table, the communion table, almost an altar. Uh, that's a mistake. That's the, that's the mistake of Anglicanism. That's the mistake of Catholicism where they've taken the communion table and turned it into an altar and pushed the preaching of God's word over into the corner of the church. Nor indeed must it be set off on the platform so as to make room for musicians and worship bands and worship groups. Listen, the scripture must have primacy. It must have the central place. Because it's the word of God. And it's by the word of God that men and women are saved. And it's by the word of God that men and women are sanctified. You know, as long as I've been a Christian, and I'm sure you'll all testify to the same thing. I don't think there are any new believers among us. But as long as I've been a Christian, Christians have always argued about the same stuff, haven't they? Huh? You know, you go back and you you know, Calvinism or not Calvinism. King James Bible, not King James Bible. Uh, traditional music, con uh, contemporary music. Um, sang gifts, no sang gifts. These things we've always argued about. We'll argue about these till Jesus comes. And of course, when he comes, you'll find out I was right. But, uh, but nevertheless, we've argued about all of these things. And, and the music issue is one of those ongoing issues, isn't it? And uh, I, I, I watched one time, you know, every now and then you, in, on social media, you'll see people get into an argument. And if you're smart, most times you'll not get involved in the argument. You just sit back and watch the fight develop. And then you can, you can listen to what people are saying. And this argument took place one time between Christians about music. And they were going back and forth whether you, know, you should use hymns singing or whether you should use contemporary music in churches. And they were going back and forth, these believers. And then one believer castigated another believer who believed in traditional hymn singing. And, and he or she said, well, you'll never win people to Christ with music like that referring to hymn singing. And here was my thought. You'll never win people to Christ with music. Full stop. You win people to Christ with the Word of God. That's how you win them to Christ. It's not about the music. And so it's not, uh, you know, in that respect, uh, it, it, we ought to realize that it's the Word of God that causes people to be saved. It's the Word of God that causes people to grow. As one preacher puts it, preaching God's Word is the central gift of the Spirit given by Christ to the church. It's not musical gifts that's the central gift. It's not administrative gifts that are the central gift. It's not demonstrative gifts that are the central gift. It's not miraculous gifts that are the central gift. No, God has chosen by the foolishness of preaching to save them who believe. By the preaching of the Word of God. And that is forever where we should stand. And that is why our pulpit stands here. And that's why it should stand here forever. You know, this pulpit will survive. I'm talking about the wooden pulpit. will survive when all of us are dead. Do you realize that? This pulpit is so solid, it'll be here in about a hundred or more years from now. But I hope that it's not just here physically, but that it's actually here in the center of the church. And people are still preaching from it. Because the Bible is the central message of the church. The Bible is a miraculous book. It's a life-giving book. It's a living book. 
And there is no other book on earth like it. Paul says of it, it is a boundless book, a book that cannot be bound, the unbounded book. Well, what are we to do with a book like that? Well, we're to reverence it, we're to read it, we're to study it, we're to memorize it, and we're to preach it. We're to let it go. The Bible is its own champion. The Bible doesn't need me to defend it. The Bible is its own defender. The Word of God needs no help from me. God is not in some position of poverty whereby He depends upon me or He depends upon you. No, the Word of God is able to do the job simply on its own. And so our job is simply to learn it, to live it, to proclaim it, and let it loose and let it go. And let's see what God can do with it. As Paul said, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. May God bless these thoughts to our hearts this morning. Father, we thank